0: Well, happy new year to everyone. I hope you had a a good celebration. And uh, I know a lot of people were trying to nudge 2020 along out the door and uh, welcome 2021 and uh, all the jokes that go with that too. Uh, This morning, we are going to be in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you want to be making your way there in your Bibles, we're going to take a uh, brief hiatus from our tour through Romans, and um, and today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Just a few verses I want to read to us from verses 14, 15, and 16 of that chapter. This is Paul speaking, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, come to you this morning and right off the bat, we bow down before you. We worship you and declare that you alone are God, sovereign over all things, all-knowing, all-powerful, wise, eternal, unchanging creator God. You are worthy of all of our praise and adoration and time, our lives, our efforts, our affections. We worship you. And we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. That that He came to redeem sinners from the certain destruction that uh, their sin had earned them, that our sin had earned us. And Jesus left glory and came into our world to be born one of us, taking on humanity. To... Redeem sinners like us. We, we praise you for Christ. Praise you for what he's accomplished. And Father, as we have this opportunity this morning to have your word open before us, we get to sit together in a heated building, safe and secure. We have blessed opportunity to hear from you and your word this morning. And I pray that you would indeed speak to us by your spirit from your word. I pray that you would help us to uh, be all here and now, that we wouldn't be distracted in thinking about uh, those other things that uh, will come or those things that have gone, those things that we fear, those things we so greatly desire that might crowd in and, and fight for our attention during these next few minutes. Instead, I pray. As uh, Woody prayed, that we would be good listeners, good hearers, and that we would indeed respond to what you have in your word. So we ask for your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's the uh, new year. That's uh, not a surprise to anyone. And, and uh, you know, New Year is a time of resolutions. I'm not sure I've ever officially made a New Year's resolution or not. I'm a little uh, skeptical of my own ability to keep such a thing, and so I'm hesitant to make New Year's resolutions. But I do know that, uh, you know, this is the time of year when gyms are packed full and when diet food is, you know, at an all-time uh, high because people are um, trying to, to get over all the stuff that they ate from, you know, mid-November to, uh, to New Year's. And so they're making changes in their lives. It's a time of assessment. We're kind of taking stock of ourselves. We're taking stock of maybe what we've done, of what our values are, maybe how we're spending our time. And, uh, and this is true of us personally, each of us personally. And as I said, I'm not huge on new year's resolutions, but it is a convenient time in the, in the year where you can, you kind of reflect and say, you know, um, what did I do with myself this past year? What did I do with my time, with my heart, with my money, with my family? And so we can reflect on this past year, and, and of course, that reflection is a personal reflection, and, and for many of us, it's a, as a family, it's a, it's a thought, but it's a good reflection for us to have as a church also. To think back over the last year, and, and 2020 was a very strange year, and uh, when we have our State of the Church meeting on the 31st, we will go over, uh, kind of in brief review, uh, just kind of what the year was like, The the things that happened, the things that came that were unexpected, the things that we expected to come that didn't happen, and all of that kind of stuff. 2020 was a very strange year, but it's a good time for us to assess our own priorities as a church and individually during this time. And so as we come to our passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is a part of Really what's going to be a, uh, what I intend to be kind of a mini series on the church and how the church is put together, how God has designed the church, and then what He has designed the church to do, how He's designed it to function to accomplish that purpose. And today, as we're looking at 1 Timothy 3, uh, we, we see a glimpse into Paul's own kind of explanation of his motives for why he's writing 1 Timothy. If you are uh, familiar with kind of how we categorize New Testament books, you're familiar with what, what are called the pastoral epistles. First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus it would be the pastoral epistles. So these are letters that are written by Paul to his delegates to uh, people that he has sent, namely Timothy and then Titus, that he's sent to carry on the work that Paul can't be there to do. And so he sent Timothy to do this thing in Ephesus, and he sent Titus to do this thing in Crete, etc. And so um, you've got uh, these these letters that are letters from one pastor, an older pastor to a younger pastor. Letters from an apostle to a young man who has been sent as a small a apostle or as a, a pastor in those regions. And, and so you learn a lot of things in the pastoral epistles. And as we look at these verses, we get a glimpse into what is Paul's motivation, why he's writing this particular letter, why he chose to do so, and why he included what he included, and why he weeded out the things that he weeded out, etc. And so as we look at our passage today, we can see that it comes immediately after what uh, what he had been writing earlier in chapter 3 of the qualifications for overseers, the, the elders, and then he moves on from that and talks about the qualifications for deacons, etc., how the church is to be structured and these different people in these different jobs and responsibilities. And then he comes to verse 14, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He desires to be there. He desires to be with him. And and uh, and so you can see in your outline there, if you've got that from your bulletin, we see in, in this verse a, a peek into Paul's concern for the church. And his first concern for the church is a desire to be present. He wants to be there. He wants to be with them. And not just Timothy. Of course, he wants to be with Timothy. He wants to continue mentoring Timothy, his protege. He, he wants to continue working with him. But it, really, it's a desire to be with the whole church. He wants to be there. This is a part of a part of his heart. And we saw this when we went through Romans chapter one. Paul's heart for the church. When he said in verses nine through twelve of Romans one, he said, "For God is my witness." whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. Remember, he's writing this to Romans, to a church he's never visited before. He's never been to this place. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Both yours and mine, he wants to be with them. He has a desire to be with these Christians. He has a desire to be with Timothy and with this church in Ephesus. It's a it's a, a heart desire. It's something he longs for. Stephanie and I were in in Russia in 1996 and 1997, and. And uh, many of you remember that, and uh, one of the things you may remember if you were here at that time is when we returned in 97, we gave a report of that missions trip and what it had been like and, and uh, you know, all of that because we lived there for a year, et cetera. And, and so um, this church was a large part of supporting us to go there. And so when we came back, we gave a presentation, and, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but one of the things I remember the most about uh, coming back and... Um, giving the report was first of all you let me go until 12:15 which is amazing okay and i remembered that i filed it away and i remembered hey parkside will let me go for hours <laughs> and so that's why you suffer as you do now that's one thing i remember but there's another thing that i remember and that's that i stood up here and wept and i'm not a weepy person i'm not an emotional person and i stood up here and cried and there's one reason that i did so that's because for that year in russia we, you know, we, we did not have access to a lot of American things that we were used to. We did not have access to, you know, uh, TV shows that we understood or commercials or any of that kind of stuff. And that's not what we missed. What we missed was this. We missed being together with Christians and we found a church and we went to a church. Sometimes it was hard to get to, and you had to, you know, take two or three buses to get there on time on a Sunday morning. And, and it was, it was uh, a by a couple. A husband and wife, and, and as I recall, the wife would preach just as often as the husband, and so that was that was a little strange for us. And it was half in English, half in Russian, so that was very strange for us. It was a different culture. It didn't feel like home. It didn't feel like home. It didn't. It, it wasn't the connection that we have here. And so when we got back here, and we saw many of your smiling faces, and we sang familiar songs, and we heard preaching that we could understand every word of, it was touching. And it brought me to the point where I stood up here and wept for the first while that we were supposed to be talking. Because I had a desire to be present with the church. And a Christian has a desire to be present with the church. A Christian has a desire to be with other Christians. To fellowship together. To have that kind of relationship. To be comforted. To be even corrected sometimes. To be guided. To be helped. To be supported. To be given strength. We desire to be together. And and, uh, you see that here in in Paul's message. He says, I hope to come to you soon. But, he says, I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul had a drive to prepare them. A drive to prepare them. Paul was always aware that these little churches he was planting... All throughout Asia Minor and wherever he was planting churches, he knew they were vulnerable. He couldn't stay there the whole time. And sometimes he would stay for, you know, many months or or even a few years. He would stay in one place working with the church and investing in them. But he knew that he had to move on. He was an apostle. He wasn't primarily a pastor. He wasn't someone who would stay put for all that time. He was supposed to move on. So there would come a time when he would have to leave them. And he knew they would be vulnerable. He knew that they would be vulnerable to false teaching. They would be vulnerable to the influence of the world coming in. There would be danger for them. And he, he will say to actually these same elders in Acts chapter 20, he, he says these words, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he, he's meeting, he's traveling by Ephesus, he meets with the elders of, of uh, the church at Ephesus and he says to them, fierce wolves are coming in. Some of them are going to rise up from among you and it's going to be dangerous. And so he seeks to prepare them. He has a desire to prepare them. And you can see throughout Paul's teaching, his main desire is to prepare them Doctrinally, to prepare them in regards to teaching. If you will take some time this afternoon and read through First Timothy and look for the word teaching or doctrine, you will see that it is scattered throughout this little book. His main desire, one of his main desires was that Timothy hold to sound doctrine, that he teach accurately, that he teach correctly. Because by doing so, He would protect those sheep. He would protect that flock. And in our times that are very tumultuous, there's a very strange social world we find ourselves in, a very very strange political world we find ourselves in right now. You'll hear many calls for the church to be very careful to protect itself lest it lose religious freedom. I agree with that. I think that's important but it's not uppermost. There's, a, there's a, a strong call that the church protect itself and, and look out for its own interest and, and and be prepared to try and dodge persecution because people see it on the horizon and they think, well, if we do these things, we can keep that from happening. I don't disagree with that, but it's not the top priority. The top priority, I believe in Paul's mind, I believe the top priority from the New Testament is that we teach Doctrine that would prepare the church to endure suffering, to endure persecution. I don't think the primary thrust of the New Testament uh, teaching the church is how to dodge persecution, how to stave it off, but rather how to endure it. How to teach a doctrine that would cause the Christians to cling to Christ no matter what's going on around them. Now, we live in a different time than Paul did. We have a, a say in our government that uh, that he didn't have. Uh, questions of how much that say is heard or not aside, we're in a place and a time where we can speak. Our voice can be heard. Maybe not all the ways we'd like it to. Maybe not all the ways it should. Maybe not all the ways it has been in the past. I'm not arguing any of that. But I'm saying we live in a context where we can criticize We can speak up, we can organize, we can accomplish things politically that were unimaginable in this time. But that is not the main focus. That is not the main thrust. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I'm saying that the main thrust, I believe, of the New Testament is to teach a doctrine that so grounds the Christians that when persecution comes, they will endure it as Jesus did, as Paul did. So Paul has a a drive, a desire to prepare them for that, to prepare them for problems that are going to arise within the church, whether it's uh, social problems within the church, or whether it's doctrinal problems within the church, that's the primary focus, or whether it's persecution from without, he seeks to prepare them by teaching sound doctrine, and he's encouraging Timothy to do the same thing. So he says, "I, I hope to come to you soon, but... In case I can't, if I delay, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul has in mind here a distinct practice for the Christian, a distinct practice for the church. And again, if you've read through the pastoral epistles, you know that, that uh, Paul deals with some issues here that, uh, that aren't frequently dealt with in other places. He talks about the structure of the church and what an elder is to be like and the structure of the church and what a deacon is to be like and who who can play those roles, who can be in those positions, who cannot. Uh, what's the relationship between uh, women and the church, men and the church, and things like that. He he addresses these questions because he's pointing out, he's he has a heart for the fact that Christian the Christian church is to have a distinct practice. That regardless of what's happening in the world around us, socially or politically or in any other way, regardless of what's happening in the world around us, the church has a particular way it's supposed to be set up and a particular way it is supposed to function, regardless of what is fashionable, regardless of what's trending or, or what's correct or what's politically correct in the world around us. The church is to know and behave according to the truth. We're to be organized. We're to be driven. We're to be built upon stayed upon what is here not upon what goes on around us i had a uh, friend at uh, wheaton college when i was going through grad school and his uh, his parents were both, were both pastors with a particular denomination. He was, he was from the Philippines and uh, they were pastors from a, a particular denomination and, and actually um, they were higher than pastors. They were some sort of authority within the entire denomination. And um, so he was an egalitarian, meaning he fully believed that women should be pastors exactly on par with men. There was no difference in that. He believed that. He believed some other, uh, some other things that were different from, uh, from the things that the majority of us believed. Um, and so... In our, um, one of our classes, our uh, hermeneutics classes or uh, principles of interpretation, it was called, we were given various passages that were options for us to write our final paper on. And so one of those passages that was given as an option to write our final paper on was from First Timothy chapter 2 and a statement about women not teaching or exercising authority over a man. And he thought, that's the perfect passage for me to write on and I can prove and demonstrate once and for all, using all the exegetical method, using all the the language, the Greek and the Hebrew and everything else, I'll do an academic paper proving the fact that my mom indeed should be the pastor. And so this was a a paper that we uh, agreed on our topic at the beginning of the year, or the beginning of the semester, and we had all semester to work on it. And most of us put about 90 hours into this paper. It was a big deal, all kinds of word studies and all kinds of language stuff, and and, uh, it, it was a big deal. Well, what ended up happening with him? I was working on a different passage. I was working in Ephesians. But he was working on this one. And he studied and he worked and he studied and he worked. And he put a lot of time into this. And because of his reading of 1 Timothy 2, reading it as rigorously as he possibly could, using every resource at his fingertips, and he was being trained as an exegete to do this, he ended up coming to the conclusion that... His mom really shouldn't be a pastor. She really shouldn't be preaching. And he changed his position. And my main thrust here today is not to talk about women in the pastorate. That's not my point. My point is that we are to be organized as a church according to what we find in the Word. And this is what this young man did. He went through and he studied, and he came to a conclusion that was different than what he went into try, trying to prove and so he pastors a church now he's no longer egalitarian he has structured his the church that he pastors along what he reads here from first timothy and that's the way it ought to be that we ought to be prepared we ought to be ha, have a, a distinct practice as a church that arises from this not one that arises from our culture and so this was In Paul's mind, this is a concern of his. He wanted the church to be, he wanted to be with them. He wanted to prepare them to protect them. And then he wanted them to understand that there is a distinctive practice in the church that arises from Scripture. It's not foisted upon it from the outside. But it should grow up from the Scripture itself. And this is his desire for the church there. And these desires had a lot to do with the unique identity of the church. Because the identity of the church is indeed unique. First of all, he calls it the household of God. He says in verse 15, if I delay, I've written to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The first unique identity of the church is that it is the household of God. It's a family family. God has constituted a family in the church. And that implies a warmth of relationship. That implies a commitment in those relationships within the Christian household, within the Christian family. There's to be that kind of relationship. And so the application is pretty simple. Let us love one another. Jesus said we are to love one another as Jesus loved us. And our love for one another is part of the way non-Christians will know that we are his disciples. According to John chapter 13. Now that doesn't always come naturally. We don't always naturally like one another. We, we may be committed to loving one another. We may be committed to doing what is best for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that doesn't mean that we always come into it with uh, an easy relationship. That we naturally like one another. I think of two of the apostles that, that set this off immediately. One is Simon the Zealot, who was kind of committed to overthrowing Rome. And on the other hand, you had Matthew, the tax collector, who was sold out to Rome and doing business for them. They were at opposite ends of the political spectrum, and they were both called to be apostles together. Was that easy? I have no idea. You don't read through and find, you know, them sparring with one another or anything like that, but I can't imagine that that was very easy. And when we are called together as a church, as the household of God, we're called into that kind of relationship where we are committed to loving one another, even if we do have those sorts of disagreements, even if we do uh, struggle really to like one another, right? Like, like your own natural family that you were born into, you love them and you don't always like them. Sometimes you struggle, you want to like them and you usually do, but you work through things. Even when there are difficulties that arrive uh, uh, that arise because you are committed to loving them, and we ought to have that kind of loyalty to one another, we ought to have that kind of love for one another. Paul calls the church "the household of God," the family of God." That's our relationship with one another. It's also called the family of God, the household of God, because we have God as our Father. The unbelieving world does not have God as its father. We have been brought into his family. We have been made his children. We've been brought into that household in a way that, that, that the unbelieving world is not included. They, they could be, but not yet. They're not yet included. We are. We have been brought in by redemption that we have in Christ. We have been made his children. And so we're called a household of God. But he continues and, and doesn't just use that one image, but he says the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the church of the living God. Well, there's a lot of imagery that's going on here, but, but I think the main thing being, being focused here is, is something that was true of Israel also. Israel in the Old Testament, you read through the histories, you read through uh, even the, the, the prophets and, and the relationship between Israel and their neighbors, right? And the relationship between Israel's God and their neighbors' God's. They were vastly different. And one thing that was unique about Israel is their God is the living God. He's really alive. He's not a a stone statue. We didn't carve him out of something. He, He really is the living God. He has spoken to us. He brings judgment upon us. He brings blessing upon us. He defends us against our enemies or he hands us over to our enemies. That is his acting because he is the living God. And so... Paul will say here that we are the church of the living God. We are the church of the God who really is, who really exists. Think about the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's got the 450 prophets of Baal there coming against him, and there's this big showdown, right? The showdown between the one lone guy and the 450 prophets of Baal, right? It's a great story. It's a, it's a, a great picture of God's faithfulness how could Elijah be so confident I mean I've stood against odds before and the greater the odds against you you know you kind of tend to begin to question yourself at some point it doesn't seem like Elijah did that why was he so confident did he just have some kind of internal uh, confidence or whatever I think he was confident for this reason because the showdown was not between him and 450 men The showdown was between his God and their God. And that turned the tables entirely. Because his God is the living God. His God is the one true creator God of all things. Who actually exists. Who spoke to him. Who spoke through him. The God who works in history. The God who is. Versus Baal. And he can... In that picture, he ends up mocking them and mocking Baal because he knows Baal doesn't really exist. They're cutting themselves. They're dancing around. They're doing all these things to try and get Baal's attention. And he's encouraging them on, you know, maybe you'll be a little bit louder. Maybe he's taking a nap. You know, maybe he's in the restroom. <laughs> you know, maybe you just haven't gotten his attention. You should try harder. How, how could he be so bold? Because he knew the living God. And he knew that Baal was nothing. And Paul here in 1 Timothy 3 calls us the church of the living God, the one true and living God. That's us. That's us. It's not the church of an idea. We are not the church of an idea. We are not the church of an ethic, a Christian ethic. That's what binds us together and that's what we're about. We are not the church of an ethic, we are not the church of a philosophy. Not the church of a purpose or a commitment. Certainly not the church of any particular ethnicity. We are not the church of a a great man who's long dead. Our God is living even now. And He is actually more living than anything else that's alive because He is the source of life. That's our God. We are the church of the living God, the one who truly is. The one true and living creator God is our God. And so Paul will say of us that we're the church of the living God. The household of God, the church of the living God, and the pillar and support, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Thirdly, we are supporting the truth. We hold forth truth. Real, ultimate, unchanging, objective, eternal Truth That's what we hold forth That's what we hold forth That's what we hold in our hands When we hold the Bible Real Eternal Unchanging Objective Truth That's what we proclaim When we proclaim the gospel And truth is What our entire worldview Is built upon Truth We are a very unique people as Christians in that we have been given truth by the one who is himself truth. And he's given it to us. He's given it to us in his word. And so a couple of points of application for us. Let's be bold with that truth. What boldness we ought to have before the world. What, what confidence ought to be ours when we hold forth the truth of the Bible of salvation in Christ alone. What a confidence we ought to have, a boldness. Why was Elijah so confident? Because he knew the one true and living God. And he knew he was up against a lie. How could he lose? We ought to be bold. We ought to be confident. This verse is also a call for us to hold fast to the truth as it is in Christ. Church isn't a social club. It's not a congregation of people who have common interests. We like to socialize together. We do have common interests with one another, but that is not what we are primarily. The church must be built on and centered around the truth as God has given it to us in his word. That's the center. That's what we're built upon. That's what we gather around. We don't gather around our common ideas, our common ideals. We gather around God's word. And finally, we have the truth, and so let's do it. Let's do the truth. James will say, but let us be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. We're not only to hold forth the truth, we are to believe that it is real. It is real and ultimate. The truth that we hold forth defines reality. It defines ultimate reality. And since the truth of the Bible defines ultimate reality, we must live according to it. To put it another way, if we don't live according to the teaching of the Bible, that may be evidence that we don't actually believe that it's true, because we live according to what we believe to be actually true. Let us be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive themselves. The identity of the church is truly unique as God's household, the church of the living God and the pillar and support of the truth. And finally... The message of the church is absolutely central. The message of the church is what we have there in verse 16. And you'll see probably in your Bible that it's kind of indented in certain ways or it's italicized or it's in all caps or something to indicate that it's a hymn. It's, it's like poetry, the way it's put together. This is, this is unique. It's, it's, it's dense. It, it's to have a lot of information in it. And there are different ways to look at this. But I think the best way for us to look at it is that the first two lines there refer to Christ's work accomplished. Again, this is the message of the church. This is what we ought to be about. This is what we ought to be focusing on. And first is Christ's work accomplished. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. I think that's what's talking about here. Is, is everything from the time of his manifestation in the flesh, meaning his incarnation, which we just celebrated, right? At Christmas time, Advent, we talk about Him coming into this world that the eternal Son of God took on flesh and became a a little baby who would then grow up and continue, would grow up and obey His Father, would, would grow up and be obedient where we've not been, and then would die on that cross. And then He would be raised from the dead. He would finally ascend to be with the Father. I think that's what He's talking about in this first two lines here. He was manifested in the flesh... And vindicated by the Spirit in the end. He's saying the thrust of our message is the entirety of the accomplished work of Christ. That's what we preach. That's what we focus on. That's what we teach. What Christ has accomplished. Secondly, the second two lines there talk about Christ's work revealed he was seen by angels proclaimed among the nations what what Christ accomplished didn't happen in obscurity somewhere while he was meditating in the jungle with uh, only a disciple to see him or maybe no one right what Christ accomplished was accomplished for the world to see it wasn't hidden under a stone it wasn't in a corner it was made known it was revealed it was It was a spiritual work that he accomplished. It was seen by angels, but it was also proclaimed among the nations. They talked about what went on in Jerusalem. They would point back and say, Yeah, it was on this day and at this time when these things happened. It was made known. It happened in reality, it happened in history. It was revealed. It wasn't hidden, it wasn't concealed. It was made known for people to see, for people to witness. The message of Christ's redeeming work was never meant to be a secret. And it's the task of the church to preach what Christ has done for all to hear. To continue making it known. To continue revealing. As we read in Acts chapter 4, Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. But he has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which We must be saved. This is the name. This is where salvation is found is in Christ himself. And so let's proclaim Christ. May we never conceal the gospel. May we never sit on it. May we never keep it from other people. How many times do we let conversations pass us by and we we didn't take advantage? It was right there. The person was expressing need or expressing their own concern or this was a good opportunity for the gospel. I had the opportunity... And I kept my mouth shut or I directed the conversation somewhere else. I didn't talk about Christ. Let's make him known. Let's make him known. It's his name alone where we find salvation. Christ's work revealed. And we are to be those who reveal it. Let's reveal it in our, uh, to our children and to our spouses and to our families and our co-workers and our neighbors and stranger and friend alike. People near and far. Let's make Christ known and thirdly the last couplet there is about christ's work acknowledged believed on in the world and taken up in glory the message of the church is christ's accomplished work the message of the church reveals christ's work to the nations and lastly christ's work has to be acknowledged what we celebrate is what he accomplished We don't celebrate that we have certain information or insight. We're not Gnostics. We don't celebrate that we know certain secrets that other people don't know. We don't gather to celebrate that we know the right things to do in order to have peace with God. We don't celebrate because we have certain feelings. We don't celebrate in order to obtain certain feelings. We don't even gather to celebrate simple historical events. We celebrate the historical events of jesus life from his incarnation that we celebrated at christmas time to his obedient life to his substitutionary death and burial and resurrection but we don't even simply celebrate those events in themselves we're not just remembering history we are celebrating the fact that those events in themselves happened in history in reality for my redemption that's why we celebrate that's why we gather and that's why we talk about Christ from beginning to end this is what the church is about this is our message is Jesus Christ himself now i could we could spread this out we could talk more broadly about what uh, uh what other things the church is about and and there are other legitimate ways we could go with this conversation about what, it, what the church is about. But the thrust of Paul's comments here in these verses focuses on Jesus himself and what he's accomplished. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. And I forgot to bring my little tiny packet. Does, can anyone supply me with that? I think I left it in my office. Thank you. when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not only celebrating, not simply celebrating an historical event. I like history as much as the next guy. This is an historical event that brought about our redemption. That's why we celebrate it. That's what we're focusing on. So if like me, you forgot to bring one of these, now's the time. Go grab one. We also have Ziploc bags that, have, uh, that are gluten free, and every, everything is kind of larger. So, this is a, a little small thing. I hope I can do this without causing a mess. So, if, if you need a larger one, no shame in that. Trust me. Uh, we have some of those Ziploc ones there, and Ron will be happy to supply you with, with whatever's needed. But this is the Lord's Supper that we celebrate together, and we are celebrating an historical event. We're celebrating things that really happened in history that had you been there and had you had a video camera you could have recorded it. But we're not just celebrating history. We're celebrating what these historical events mean for us. What these historical events have accomplished for us. And so... Because that's the case, this is a a celebration for, for believers only to participate in. We are celebrating what Christ has done for us. Not just something that's been done generally. What that means is he did those events and those events apply to me by faith in Christ. And so if you have not yet trusted Christ, if you don't know him, just let these let these uh, let this time go by and listen to what's being said and then ask me questions afterwards or uh, ask questions of your neighbor. But this is something for us who are in Christ to celebrate what has been done for us. We have these two elements before us. We have the bread and we have the cup. So we take first the bread. Paul says, writes these words in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. What did he mean by that? This is my body, which is for you. He was talking about his own sacrifice. He was talking about the giving of his own life, the sacrificing of his own body. And not, certainly not because he deserved it. He didn't deserve it. He was on that cross as the only innocent man. The only one who had obeyed the father from the beginning. He was innocent, didn't need to be there for, for himself. Now you and I, on the other hand, the Bible says Of you and me that we are sinners. And that's something that our own heart resonates with. That we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have so often pursued our own desires. We've so often pursued our own glory. Above God's glory. And that's called sin. And we've done that in a million ways. And so that puts us in a place where we are in opposition to God. We're at enmity with God. But Jesus himself comes on the scene. The obedient one. And he gives his own body to step into that place to pay that penalty that I deserved. The wrath of God that I deserve because of my sin. Jesus went to that cross to bear that wrath. He gave his own body. In my place, condemned he stood. And so thus, I can receive forgiveness. Because my guilt is passed to him. It's It's put on him and executed in him. And I receive forgiveness instead. And so this is is what Christ accomplishes on that cross when He he gave His own body and He would say the night before, this is my body, which is for you. And so I'm going to pray for us and in a moment we will partake of this together, celebrating what Christ has done, not just in history, but what Christ has done for me. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus gave himself his own body for us, sacrificing his life when he was innocent, when he was actually fully and completely righteous, having always been obedient to you, not just avoiding sin, but fully obedient to you, and yet went to that cross. He didn't deserve that. I deserve that. And he went there so that he could take my punishment upon himself, so that he could take the wrath of God that was rightly directed at me, and he would bear it in his body instead. So as we celebrate the bread, we celebrate the body of Jesus that he has given for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood the new covenant in my blood In that new covenant, God reaches down, declares us to be righteous, makes us right with him, makes us alive to him, so that from the heart we desire to obey him. He gives us life where there was death, where there was spiritual death from our own inheritance from Adam and from our own disobedience, a hard heart that was turned from him that was far from him. And instead he took that heart of stone and he replaced it with a heart of flesh, one that beats for spiritual things, one that's sensitive to the father, making us alive with him. And so Jesus says in that new covenant, this is the new covenant in my blood, my own blood that I give for you. My life, Jesus says that has been lived in perfect obedience to the father is given as a gift to you. So that not only is our guilt passed to Jesus and punished in him, but so also his righteous life, his obedience, the righteousness required to be in God's presence, is then given to us by faith. We are made alive. We are declared to be righteous, and we have peace with God because of what Christ has done. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, he says. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands the cup representing the blood of Christ who gave his own life for us to redeem us to bring us into right relationship with you to establish that new covenant and it is applied to us we rejoice in that that his gift was given to me So we praise you that your son gave himself, even to his own life's blood, for our redemption. We pray in his name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even in that that we just did together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are making known, reminding ourselves, reminding one another, calling it to our attention in a a way that we can taste, in a way that we can feel, in a way that we can remember as we go about this week. That we stand before God, we who are in Christ stand before God, declared innocent, declared righteous because of what he has accomplished. Not because of what I've done, not because of what you've done, not because we're just good people, but because of what Christ has done. And so we stand and rejoice in that ultimate truth. May we walk in that truth and the joy of that this week. Let me close with this reading from Romans chapter 15. Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask indeed that you would bless us as we go about this week. We thank you for this celebration that we've had of Christ giving himself for us we thank you for the fact that you have brought us together again on a Sunday morning. We get to be with the church that we desire to be with. Father, we ask that you would help us to uh, hold fast and hold forth the truth of your word. And may you bless Parkside Bible Fellowship. May you bless each of these here and each of these listening uh, on the Internet. Father, we pray that you would be at work in us. That we would understand that these things are, are true reality, ultimate true reality, that you are the living God and we are the church of the living God. What a blessed condition for us to be in. So we thank you and we praise you. Send us forth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Happy New Year and you're dismissed.